this morning. Why don't you go ahead and turn over. If you can find the New Testament, just start flipping backwards, and you should end up there pretty soon. We are nearing the end of our study of the Minor Prophets. If you're visiting with us this morning, you should know that we, uh, we are studying for the fall a, book, a, a group of books of 12 small books called the Minor Prophets, the last chunk of the Old Testament. And they were originally given in very different times by different people, but collected into one whole and presented uh, ever since as one book uh, composed of 12 different chapters. We've been spending a week on each one, and this morning we come to the book of Haggai. That's where we'll be this morning if you can find that. Uh, Also, I'll mention, too, that if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be Bibles scattered through the seating area. You should be able to see one or flag somebody down to pass one to you, and we'd love for you to just take that with you and... and, uh, that could, that could be our gift to you. This morning we're going to be in Haggai. A few years ago, one of the best, one of the most remarkable, even stunning books that, that I can remember reading was the one I read a few years ago called The Kite Runner. A lot of people read it. It was a massive bestseller. Uh, I forget how many millions of copies were sold. I think they made a movie out of it, too. It's a book about, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a work of fiction, but it's very autobiographical by uh, its author, is an, an Afghan-American immigrant who fled as a child from Afghanistan after the Soviet op- occupation in the late 70s. And this book is framed as a, a similar experience. It begins with a boy who lives in, in Afghanistan while it's free, and, and then the Soviets come in in the late 70s. And, and the, the, the book traces his journey to America, but then back to Afghanistan through the Taliban occupation and then the U.S., uh, ousting of the Taliban. It's, a, it's an epic tale that, that covers everything that's happened in Afghanistan since the, the 70s. But one of the things that really jumps out at me about it, one of the, one of the images that I have in my mind that I'll never be able to get out, was the, the way that he described what it's like for wealthy people who have significant resources, sometimes are even royalty or government officials in a place like Afghanistan, who are forced to flee and become refugees in America the way that they have to start understanding life completely differently because what they leave is wealth and opulence, sometimes amazing palaces that they lived in and, and power and, and, and prestige that came with those positions. And then when they show up in America, they are, are, are often lumped into mass housing where they're living with many, many other people. They are, they are forced to work multiple jobs, many of them very undesirable to, to us, we typically know refugees from seeing them at, on late night shifts in a, in a in a gas station or something, or, or seeing them in in these apartment complexes on Nolansville Road. When, when we see them, they they appear to us as as people who don't have a lot. But that's not the way many of them started. Many of them lived earlier in their lives as at the top rungs of their societies. They know what that feels like. They know what it is to have plenty and and not to want. And then they come to America. And they're forced to grapple with jobs that no one wants, that are the only ones left for them, and, and to be looked down upon and not understood and, and be treated, uh, to be treated poorly in many cases. The kite runner gets into that mindset, to what it would be like to go from one style of life into a complete, radically different style of life. I think it also helps us get, give some, gives us some insight into what it must have been like for the people of Israel who had enjoyed autonomy and wealth and respect and prestige in their own kingdom in Judah, but who were then conquered by Babylon and then began to return to Judah after they were conquered? What it must have been like for those who had memories 
of the old Judah, the free Jerusalem and all that it represented, to now come back to a Jerusalem that's in ruins, a, J- a Jerusalem with a temple that's just shambles, that has no wall, that has barely any people, and a, and a ruler that's, not, that's a far cry from King David, that's merely a puppet governor for some foreign power. The last three books that, that we are, are going to look at in the Minor Prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are written in that context. It's after Israel has, and, and Judah, the, the southern kingdom of Israel, those have both been conquered. Their peoples have been taken away, and now they're starting to trickle back. And when they come back, they're forced to grapple with a reality that's far different from the one they left and far different from the one they were expecting when they returned. For that reason, what these books give us an, an, a window into is what, what it looks like to look for Jesus. These are the books that are written These are the last books to be written before Christ comes. In that sense, they're the ones that best set the table for him, for his coming and for why it matters so much. They help us understand the significance of Jesus. And they give us insight into what our responsibility is as, as people who live on this side of Jesus, but also as those who live in waiting. As those who have the promises of a kingdom that's still coming, that, who have these vivid descriptions of its beauty and, and its freedom from things like want and fear and, and sin, but who live now in a place full of sin and fear and want. It, these books, where the people of Judah returning to Jerusalem were met with expectations that, that had expectations that went unmet and are now forced to grapple with them, give us insight into what it's like to live as people in between the times, as those who have, live on this side of Jesus but very much on the front side of his return. That's what we're going to be looking at in the next three weeks, beginning with Haggai. We're going to spend a lot of time doing background on Haggai, trying to set the stage for it, but, but ultimately this book is about expectations, expectations that went unmet, that get recast by the prophet, and that get fulfilled in Jesus. And this book is also about our response to the realities that we see, not the ones that we expect. How, what does it look like to live faithfully as you wait for what's coming? That's what Haggai is about. Rather than read the entire book, I think what we're going to do is just start by reading the first section that we'll consider, which is the beginning of chapter 1. And I'm going to ask that you would please stand with me now in honor of God's word as we read uh, the word of the Lord from Haggai chapter 1. We're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to, to, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. This is God's word. You can be seated. 
Now, the situation that Haggai was speaking into won't make much sense to you without a little bit of the backstory. So let me give that to you. This prophecy was delivered about 100 years after Zephaniah. That's the book we looked at last week. That book was written just before Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. This is about 100 years later. He's, he, is, he is speaking to people who are, are now on the backside of a period in Israel's history known as the Exile. When Judah fell to the foreign power, to Babylon, one of Babylon's techniques for establishing its power and its rule over its conquered peoples was to take most of them, especially the best and the brightest, back to Babylon and put them to work there. Not just as slaves, but to, to make them into good Babylonian citizens. It's it almost like the immigration process that you have to go through if you want to become an American citizen. You, you learn American values and something about our history and be able to pass some sort of multiple choice test and then you're good to go and get a driver's license. It was, it was a lot like that. They would take, though, the, the hope of that kingdom and transport it and try to make them into good Babylonians. That had happened to Judah. This was a time in which God's people, the hope of the earth, lay scattered abroad far from the promised land, that land that they, they knew was to be the site for the redemption of the world. The promised people were scattered abroad far from the promised land. They knew that God had still promised them things, that he had promised them security, he had promised them peace. They had Zephaniah's final words that we looked at last week, the end of Zephaniah 3, promises a time that's coming in which they will graze and lie down and no one will make them afraid, a time when God would deal with their sins, would clear them away and, and wipe out their enemies, and God would be with them. And in that time when God was with them, he would quiet them with his love. It was this beautiful picture of a perfect security that's established because God is in their midst. That's their promise. They had those promises. But here they are in Babylon, powerless, in the hands of these occupiers. could have only been true, though, that these promises, even as, as far-fetched as they may have seemed at the time, gave hope to these exiles help them understand how to survive their captivity. And then something amazing happened. Babylon, this mighty empire, seemed impervious to all attack. Babylon fell to another power. In, in the year 536 B.C., the Persians, or, or actually a little before that, the Persians came in and cleaned house. They toppled the Babylonian empire, took it over, made it their own, and they took a different approach to the peoples that they had conquered. They often saw them as, as more resources, that it, the happier that they were, the, the, the more faithful subjects that they would be. So a decree is given from the Persian king that the people living in Babylon who were from Judah should return to their land and rebuild their temple. And maybe this king thought, their God would bless me because I'm blessing his people. That's, that decree comes down in the year 536 B.C., about 50 years after the exile had happened and Judah was conquered. So, they begin to trickle back. It's a story that's told best in the book of Ezra, which overlaps with, with what Haggai is saying here. Now, surely those who got this permission and chose to return to Israel, they had to be wondering whether or not this might be the time they had been looking for, right? They were looking to a future kingdom that they knew was coming. God had promised it to them and that it was going to center on this land and it was going to have all these beautiful images that had been promised them in places like Zephaniah or Joel or, or Hosea. Could this be the time? We're actually being sent back. Could this be it? 
It didn't take long, though, once they returned, to, f- to realize that what they found was a far cry from the kingdom that they had, they had been told about. Their temple was in ruins, and no sooner had they laid a new foundation for it, this is told in the book of Ezra, no sooner had they laid a new foundation for the temple that they, they started getting severe opposition from people who lived around their nation and from people back in Babylon who didn't want to see it happen, and they just abandoned the whole work. It was so far below what they were expecting that it seemed too depressing to push on with it. The people who returned were but a shell of what they had been. Their numbers were so small compared to what they'd been. And the ruler through whom God had promised to establish this kingdom, a ruler on David's throne, the best they could muster was this guy Zerubbabel, who was nothing more than a governor under the hand of a, basically a puppet under the hand of this oppressive regime. They may have had their own governor in their own land now, but they were still very much a part of Persia, an enemy pagan power that had, their, had complete, imposed a complete will over them. That's what they found when they returned. It was a far cry from what they expected. And so what they, rather than wait for pie-in-the-sky promises to materialize, they fell back on what they knew, and what they knew was self-reliance. What was it that got the earlier generations judged by God? What have the prophets been condemning all along? Everything we've seen so far in this series is a turning from rest and security in God and what he provides to a desire to establish material security or, or some other freedom from sin to, to, to do it ourselves. That's what was wanted, and that's what got judged. It's a form of idolatry. We can do better without God than we can do with him. The people of Israel, when they returned and found this world very different from what they were hoping it would be, turned back to those patterns that's what, that's what was described in the verses we just read in, in chapter 1. What we're des- what's described is, is a people who are all about building themselves nice houses. That reference to paneled houses, it's like you've got mansions for yourself. The temple's still in ruins. You're out there trying to make money. You're out there trying to get clothes for yourselves and food. It, all these references to what it is that makes people secure. That's what they turn their attention to when things didn't go as they had hoped that they would. And that's where Haggai confronts them. Ultimately... They had returned to the materialistic preoccupations of their ancestors. God is clearly saying here that he has made sure that their attempts to establish themselves, to survive on their own, are going to fall flat. He's he's made them put on clothes and still be cold, drink and never have your fill, eat food but never really get satisfied. And all the money that they keep trying to amass for themselves, just it's almost like they're, they're stuffing it in bags with holes and it just falls out the other side. God is thwarting them to try to get them back so that they don't, don't rely on themselves and actually trust in him. But here's the biggest problem. Here's why, here, here, is, here is what it is that has driven God to, to thwart their attempts for their own security. What is the problem? He identifies it. While they're out there building themselves nice houses, the temple of God lies in ruins. It's a, it's a shamble. It's a pile of rocks at best. Why is that such a problem? It's hard for us to connect with it because we, our, our religiosity is not nearly so tied to buildings as, as theirs was. I mean, we meet in a school, after all. You know, how much can we really connect with this? And we understand that for, for reasons that we'll even talk about later today, Jesus changes the importance of of the material in our relationship with God. But maybe a better way to connect with why the, letting the temple lay around like this in ruins was, was such a big deal 
is to think about what it would say about our appreciation for the law, for democracy, if, say, the U.S. Capitol building was bombed and we just left it that way. If the Capitol was bombed out, let's say at 9-11, the plane that was headed for Washington made it and it took out the Capitol and we just left it like that, wouldn't that be saying that we don't prioritize what that Capitol building represents, our system of governing ourselves and of making law and Let's take another example, even more tangible. When the British burned the White House, the War of 1812, you know the one where James Madison and his wife grab all the stuff and they run out, you know, she grabs the, the portraits and tries to save them and the, the whole thing is in flames. If, if we just left the White House burned out, what kind of statement would that make about our stability as a nation, about our values, about the value of the office that's housed at the White House? It, I think it's clear enough. It's a lot more similar to the statement that was being made about the temple. Because what did the temple ultimately represent? The temple represented something God put into place as a gracious offer of his presence. God's presence had always been the key to the stability of his people. What set them apart and gave them an identity was that he was with them in a special way. And the symbol that he himself created for indicating he was with them in this special way was the temple. He gave very detailed instructions for what it should look like and where it should be and how it should operate. Not because, not because any one building is any more important than another inherently, but because this was the way he just chose to, to represent his presence. It was a symbol, in other words, of his grace. His grace to be with his people when they didn't deserve it. His making a way for him to, to be there and for them to be purified so that they could relate to him. That's what the temple offered. It was everything. The temple is what made it possible for him to be there. So what? the reason it was such a big deal, that they responded to their unmet expectations with a refusal to build the temple, the reason that mattered is that it made a statement as to their value for God and his presence. If the temple is God's offer to be with you in a special way, then letting the temple lie in ruins is a statement that we don't need you. We don't want you. We can do better on our own. This is the way one Old Testament scholar put it. The house, speaking of the temple, was the outward form of the real presence of the Lord among his people. To refuse to build the house was at best saying that it didn't matter whether the Lord was present with them at all. Basically, to let the temple lie in ruins while you build houses for yourselves and try to mask wealth, what you're doing is saying the Lord is not necessary. They are assuming that his promises to them are not true, that he can't make good, that they could do better on their own. They were moving on. Now, though this generation was a lot like its predecessors in some ways, uh, though, though it did look like them in turning to materialism when when God's promises seemed too distant and not trustworthy, they were unlike their ancestors in another crucial respect. This was a generation that responded to the prophet's words. The end of chapter 1 tells of almost a revival-like atmosphere, where when they hear this word, the Lord stirs them up, their leaders and the people, both, to respond in obedience, and they begin to work on the temple. It's a dramatic and beautiful story. It's a story that could have ended right there, and we would have thought this is... This is, this is a good, beautiful tale. But the tension in this story is far from over at this point. The end of chapter 1 
leads directly into the beginning of chapter 2, where Haggai confronts something that only the most naive among them could have avoided. This temple, the one they were now building, was just a shell of what had come before. Read with me in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Solomon's temple had been magnificent. It was humongous. It was covered in gold. It was overlaid with the finest of materials and jewels, the best woods. It was put together by the best craftsmen in all of the land who were recruited just for that purpose. Their life's work came to culmination in the building of this temple. And what it looked like was still burning the memory of those who lived before its fall. Now, they would have been really old by this point. This is something like 60-ish years after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, but there were some in this generation who returned who remembered it. And you can imagine what it was like. Ezra chapter 3 tells us that when the foundation of the temple was laid, those who were there, who had seen what it had been, wept when they saw what it would be. Here's why it was such a big problem. God had promised a kingdom of perfect security where his enemies are vanquished, where sin is removed, and where God is in their midst. But these folks could not understand how this could be possible apart from the temple. The temple was the place where God met with his people. It was the place where reconciliation happened, where redemption was possible through the sacrifices that were made there. So the question that they had to be asking is how could a better kingdom be possible without a better temple? How could a better kingdom than we had before, the one that fell, be possible without a better temple at the center of it? This is what the Lord confronts head on, beginning in verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And then the promise. This must have blown their minds. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now get this. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Do you get the irony here? Though this temple, the physical one, was just a shell of what had come before, the Lord is promising that, that what was before Solomon's temple in all of its glory, that was but a shell of what's coming. Though this physical temple is just a shell of what, of what Solomon's temple had been, it's actually Solomon's temple that is just a shell, a mere shadow of the glory that's coming in the future. 
He turns their expectations on its head. He establishes that that great temple was just a pointer of the glorious presence and peace with God that's coming. And it's in that light, it's on the basis of this new expectation that he's giving to them of what's, of what's coming, that he calls them to their responsibility. Their responsibility is to faith. It is to be strong now while you wait. It is to stake yourself to this promise by acting on what God has given you in this moment, not taking it for what it isn't, but for what it is. That's the gist of verses 4 and 5. Be strong, he says. Be strong. He repeats it three times. Work, he says, for I am with you. Do you see what, he was, what he's calling them to? Yes, this temple itself, the one you're building right now, may be smaller than what you were hoping for. But by building it, by giving yourself to it, even though it isn't what we're, I'm promising you it will be, you are staking your life to the fact that I can deliver on my promises. Their faithfulness in this moment for this foreshadowing temple was a way of them confirming their faith in God for the future. That's why it mattered so much how they responded. Their expectations had been unmet. They responded by changing their priorities. Now their expectations have been recast, and they're called to respond with faith in those expectations and to be faithful in the present. That's, that's what Haggai chapter 2 is about. In the meantime, as you wait for what's coming, cling to that thing that embodies the promise of what's to come. That's the call of faith. So here's where Haggai hits us. Here's where Haggai hits us. I mentioned at the beginning that now that we've reached this last phase, the, the, the last three books of the prophets, one way we're looking at them on the whole and why they're important is that they, they are some of the ones that set us up best for Jesus. They're written right before he comes. They're written after a big letdown of the exile and a return to a, a kingdom that's a far cry from what it was before. They're written when, when, when the people were most ready for Jesus. So they help us understand how to understand Jesus. But they also help us see how to live as we wait, like they waited, for what's to come. I want to I point towards both of those themes to get us ready for future Sundays when we're going to look in more depth in, those, in the books to come. Haggai helps us on both fronts. On the one hand, Haggai helps us understand how Jesus fulfills the expectations of those who lived before him. Haggai sets the table for us to look for God's coming kingdom as a new and more glorious manifestation of his presence, of him showing his people that he's with them in a way that the best building that could possibly be built was but a shadow of. The question that the people who heard Haggai's prophecy must have been asking is, how is it possible for a building to be more glorious than the one that that was built in Solomon's time? It was literally the best they could possibly do. They used all of their resources and all of their skill to make it happen. How could anything in the future be more glorious than that? What could he be talking about? That's the question they would have been asking. Have you ever noticed that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of everything that the temple stood for? That Jesus is the greater glory that Haggai's prophecy looked forward to? There are any number of places we could go to see this. And and just by way of advertising... Almost all of next year, we're going to be looking into this thing. We're going to take the book of Hebrews and spend almost a year on it. And it is all about Jesus as the fulfillment of what the temple and all of its rituals were meant to point to. But just for the sake of time this morning, I want to point you to the book of John, a gospel written to tell Jesus' story and to interpret his significance for us. 
into especially the beginning of that book, to chapter 1 and chapter 2, which present him to us not just as the God, not just as, as the God who made all things, the word he begins with, who is with God and was God, but as God with us. Verse 14 of John chapter 1 says that the word, God himself, became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word that it uses for dwelt is literally put up his tabernacle. It's, it's a reference to the temple almost. Jesus is God tabernacled among us, not in a building, but in a person. And verse 14 goes on to say, the word was with the, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and what? We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That is the glory that Haggai was looking forward to. A glory that transcends anything possible during Solomon's reign. But John doesn't stop there. Remember, the temple is not just about God's presence. It's about making God's presence possible without the people among whom he exists being obliterated for their sin. The temple was not just God's presence, but a a means of purification so that people could come into his presence without being annihilated. That's what the sacrificial system was all about. And that's what Jesus provides perfectly once and for all. Again, Hebrews is the best development of this, but John chapter 2 points us to it. In John chapter 2, the first, some of the first action we see Jesus doing is he goes into the temple. And he finds that the same priorities that had misled Israel in their, in their return from the exile is now corrupting what's going on in the temple. They just care about making money. So Jesus drives these people out of the temple. And on his way out, he's asked a question. He, and he, he, he says that, take this temple and destroy it, and I will build it back after three days. What does John tell us? As an editor, he comes in right behind that statement of Jesus and says, you know what we didn't get at that time that we really only understood after the resurrection? He was talking about his body. Jesus was calling himself the temple that was to be destroyed. Jesus, by his own death and resurrection, fulfills that crucial element that the temple was meant to, to do for us. It purifies us and makes us able to enter into God's presence without fear. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus, in his death and resurrection, is the perfect provision of everything that the temple was meant to provide for a people who were not holy enough to enter God's presence on their own. Haggai helps us look ahead to Jesus and to fulfill the expectations. But it also calls us to a certain kind of faith now in the present. Because even though we live on this side of Jesus, he's His return is what will bring the perfect peace and freedom from sin and freedom from worry that we're all looking forward to. And what we need to know is how do we live now in the present while we wait for that return? The principles for us are the same as they were for God's people in this era that Haggai prophesied. What did he tell them ultimately? But to work, to claim what has been given to you now as a token of what's coming, to be faithful in what you've been given as a way of expressing your faith in what's coming as a way of showing that you believe God can deliver on his promises. What we want to do, in other words, one Old Testament scholar said you could summarize the point of Haggai in one phrase, consider your ways. It comes up several times. It is a statement to the people to think about how they're living and to ask themselves, are you living in a way that's consistent with a people who trusts the promises of God to be true? That's a statement that still comes to us with every bit of poignancy that it was originally delivered. We live on this side of Jesus and trust that he's fulfilled everything the temple was ever meant to produce, but we don't live 
with his living and active, tangible, seeable, and touchable presence. We wait for that. So in the meantime, what do we do? We consider our ways. Consider your ways. Are you living as if you thought Jesus was really coming back? Are you living as if you truly believe that the kingdom that he promised and that he came announcing was going to come? Would someone who analyzed your life from a distance say that you prioritize God's presence, that you seek after him, that you rest in what he provides, that you find joy in him, that you live as if he's actually coming again? Or would they say that your priorities are the same as those of ancient Israel, that you're about material security? I don't know of any other passage in the Bible that could so accurately capture what American culture right now is like than the, the, chap, the first chapter of Haggai. Isn't it so true that in our pursuit of material security, we feel like we're constantly eating and never getting full? Like we're constantly clothing ourselves, being dissatisfied with the clothes that we buy? That we're constantly trying to build savings accounts that seem like bags with holes because that, that, that target that we've got to hit to be secure just keeps moving on us? So don't build paneled houses. Don't store up money in bags full of holes. Live as if the promises of God are true. Stake your life to it. Live with what God has given us now, the promise of his presence through his son and the spirit that works within us as a way of latching on to something that's permanent, of something that is trustworthy. Live, in other words, with a sense of expectation. That's the call of Haggai to us. Would you pray with me? Forgive us, Lord, for our preoccupations, for our distractions. Forgive us for giving in too often to the cares of this world that, like a bird snatching seed off of the, the path, seem to snatch away the hope that should be ours in Jesus. Would you give us a clear enough sense of his presence now that we are able to live with hope for what's to come? Give us, we pray, a faithfulness to the grace you have already shown as a way of looking forward to the grace that's coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This